Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. How's it going? Thanks for tuning back in. This is the Intentional Growth Podcast, and this is your host, Ryan Tansom. This is episode 266, and today my guest name is Mike Sowers. He's a friend, and he's the real deal, and I can't wait to jump in today's show because we're gonna. there's a lot of meat to it. We're going to be talking about how to invest in commercial real estate and how it compares to owning a business. Mike is the real deal because he has rehab flipped and wholesaled and rented over a thousand properties in his first decade of investing. He was on the podcast a couple years ago sharing how he sold his residential rehab company for millions of dollars and all the things that he learned before and after the sale. If you want to check it out, uh, check out the show notes. I got a link to it. And Mike was super vulnerable and he was able to share a lot of what led him to today's episode and what he's doing today and why it matters. Mike got involved in commercial real estate investing after selling his business and has done over $150 million in real estate transactions. He's currently the CEO and founder of Commercial Investors Group, author of Commercial Real Estate Investing, a step-by-step guide to finding and funding your first deal, and the host of the Creative Commercial Real Estate Podcast. And what we're going to be talking about today is commercial real estate and investing and why it is it has an impact on principle number two of our intentional growth principles, because there are three financial targets in principle number two of the intentional growth principles, because one, you have to know what is your target annual income. Number two is what is your outside net worth? And then number three of the financial targets is what is the value of your business today and what do you need it to be? And what these three financial targets do is they allow you to view your company like a financial asset. And what I think is important about today's show is we're going to be talking about commercial real estate investing and how to find a good deal, how to become a passive owner or a passive investor, if that's something you want to do to help you grow your net worth outside of your business and bridge that value gap or increase your annual income. But what I think is so amazing about today's episode is Mike's seven steps that he laid out in his book and that he lays out in this episode is you could literally lay those seven steps out into thinking about business because your company is a financial asset. And by understanding those three financial targets and principle number two, and thinking about your business as a financial asset, you can go into this podcast thinking, well, this this is real estate and it's an investment. And the only reason you would invest in real estate and commercial real estate is to grow a return. And Mike talks about all the value enhancing things that they do to commercial invest or commercial real estate to grow value. There's so many similarities and Mike and I are bouncing back and forth from the from my side, from the business side and how to view your company as an asset and Mike walking through his seven steps. And I think what's important as a as an owner of your business, you can figure out how to diversify your income if you don't want to roll your money back into the company and you want to diversify your assets. It's a, a wonderful podcast to just give you the landscape of how to be thinking about your principle number two financial targets and specifically how commercial real estate could fit into your plan to help you accomplish your long-term goals. I'm excited about this because Mike is literally the real deal. This is not some fluffy theory podcast about hypothetically, what would it be like to invest in real commercial real estate? You could literally take and apply this stuff. I've uh, read Mike's book. He just launched it and I highly recommend checking it out. And uh, without further ado, here is my episode with Mike Sowers on how to invest in commercial real estate and how it compares to owning a business. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Mike, how are you? Hey, I'm doing fantastic, but I'm improving. <laughs> Always, <laughs> every day, right? <laughs> you like, know it. You're good, yeah. So this is no news for people that you and I are friends and we've been working together in various sorts over the uh, over the last couple of years. And you've been on the show and we are not going to be talking about your previous business exit. 
Um, and we'll put li- uh, links to the show note in the show notes to that story, which is wonderful. We're going to be talking about your new book, your new venture, and just the sheer amount of stuff that you've been doing. And But I want to, I, I saw your book launch and your story, that's what I want to hear because you just did such a great job in front of the audience about telling your story and giving some gold nuggets about your book and the philosophy of uh, commercial real, inse- real estate investing that you've come up with. So why don't you just start off from the start off from the top, man, and give everybody a little bit of reason about why you wrote it, what you're doing, and uh, we can dive into the meat of it. Okay. Well, the book's called Commercial Real Estate Investing, uh, and the subtitle's A Step-by-Step Guide to Finding and Funding Your First Deal. And really, my number one reason for writing the book was I was trying to actually, it started off as me trying to make sure I understood my own processes. Cause it's, it's one thing to be able to, to go out and do something. It's another thing to be able to stand in front of a group and kind of limp your way through explaining how you do what you do. And I found it's an entirely different, uh, thing to, to write it down, refine it, cut the fat, and then really uncover some opportunities where maybe your system has some flaws. And so um, when COVID kind of hit, I was like, hey, this is the time. I felt like we were really gaining traction, no pun intended. We had implemented the EOS system in our business, and we were really seeing a lot of deal flow and uh, able to fund deals with ease. And at a high level, the book just basically teaches first-time investors a step-by-step roadmap to going out and buying their first commercial real estate investment using other equity partners. So the coolest piece of it is we really kind of unlocked some of the secrets that have been tightly held about how to structure private equity partnerships. Now, the people in the kind of venture capital and private equity world in the business world understand all of those pieces, but a lot of the people in the real estate investing world actually don't understand them, particularly in the residential side. And so my background, as you know, was was as a contractor, I was flipping houses and remodeling properties for other people, and I just got burned out. And so I transitioned into commercial, and there was three big things that I didn't understand, and it was really hard getting answers from other people. Those three things were how to actually raise a million dollars to go buy a several million dollar property for the down payment. Um, The second thing was how to lease commercial properties. I thought you needed to have connections with CEOs of big corporations in downtown skyscrapers. And I think that kind of created some fear for me because I didn't have any connections whatsoever. I was never in the corporate world at all. Um, And then the third thing was really how to analyze the deals and figure out what to pay. I would look at a lot of stuff listed online and I just couldn't figure out if it was a deal or not a deal. And I didn't really have a good system to be able to analyze the deals. Those three things combined held me back from getting into commercial real estate as they hold a lot of house flippers and residential investors. I'm like, let me, I was going to say, let me, let me uh, pause you for a sec because I want to, why this is so important for the listeners is because people that are tuning in are looking to either buy a business, sell a business, grow value to exit. And commercial real estate is such a huge component of their net worth. If they own a building and they're renting from themselves for their business. And I also know that like entrepreneurs themselves like to have their fingers in a lot of different things. And I'm kind of just setting some some of the stage for what some of the things I know you're going to be able to dive into. But whether you, you know, someone wants to do this after they sell their business or they want to diversify their wealth outside of their business, whatever spectrum they're looking at, like wherever they're at in the spectrum, I think that this is you're about to jump into this. It's relevant to them because entrepreneurs and investors are all kind of blended together. So I just wanted to make sure that that was very uh, acutely or uh, shine a light on because it's going to be relevant. It's not just for real estate investors. Yeah, hundred percent. In fact, our, our coaching program is really geared towards people that are crushing it, doing what they do best. A lot of business owners, high net worth individuals and high income earning individuals can all benefit tremendously from using real estate and particularly commercial real estate as an investment vehicle to deploy capital and get 
absolutely phenomenal returns. And one of the things I know me and you talked about on a podcast that the recording didn't, didn't turn out that <laughs> well, but we really looked at like, how is valuing a piece of real estate uh, different mm-hmm. than a business and how is it similar? And we go into some of that in the book. And really, I just kind of changed the game on the whole term cap rate. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so funny because Valuing a business is so simple. It's like, all right, figure out the EBITDA, normalize the EBITDA, and then figure out what the multiple is that the market's going to pay based on the sustainability, transferability, and predictability of Look at that. Yeah. (laughs) In your classes, right? (laughs) I love it. You use a lot of that stuff, and it's the same thing in real estate, right? Um, But for some reason in real estate, instead of multiplying by a five, multiple, we like to divide by a 20% cap rate. So we divide by a fraction instead of multiply by a whole number. But (laughs) that's why I came up with this term in the book called the magic multiple. You inspired me to basically retrain people to look at it and figure out what their magic multiple is. And it's one of the coolest things that kind of changes the game for you. So going back to my original story about how I was, I was struggling to analyze deals. Um, now I can essentially figure out what the base rent rate is and apply my magic multiple and figure out literally on the back of a napkin in like 30 seconds, how much I can pay for a property to achieve my desired profit margin. And my magic multiple is 9.375. So if I'm projecting the NOI, and by the way, NOI is the term we use in real estate. It is the exact same thing as EBITDA. So mm-hmm. it's the operating cash flow, not, and we're t- setting aside any cash flow from investing or financing activity. So it doesn't include mortgage payments. It doesn't include anything that we're putting on the balance sheet and then amortizing mm-hmm. or depreciating like closing Even costs that. and capital improvements and those types of things. So, and so I love it. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, well, I'll, uh, to, to wrap that thought up, as far as like analyzing, all we have to do is basically figure out what the even though the property is going to be in the future when it's stabilized, because we buy, you know, I teach people to buy value add properties. And that's just a fancy term for properties that are underperforming financially, where we can increase that financial performance and increase the multiple of that cash flow stream that somebody's willing to pay for it in the future by kind of de-risking it. And so it's the same thing. People buy these distressed businesses. They increase the EBITDA, they increase the multiple, and then they turn around and either recapitalize or exit. I love it's, it, man. It's the same process. I love, I love how clear it is that you describe it too, because it, it's just, like you said, it's the back of the napkin math. And what you have built is the opposite of the back of the napkin. So you, the, how you described it is very clear, but there's a lot of guts below, below this that we're going to get into. I, I think one question before we jump into the technical, some of the technical natures of this and your steps, Mike, is why commercial real estate? So when you get done selling a business and you're going, okay, what do I do now? I've got some capital. Why commercial real estate? And why do you believe that there's such an opportunity inside the commercial real estate landscape? Well, there's a, there's a few options you have, right? You can, you can hand your money to your financial advisor and let them go buy some mutual funds or ETFs or individual stocks or, or whatever, right? And that's all fine and dandy. At the end of the day, though, you cannot really control anything other than your financial advisor and what they're choosing to invest in, but you cannot force any appreciation on your portfolio. And guess what? The rug can get pulled out from underneath you. Whereas if you follow my seven step system to invest your capital that you may have from exiting out of a business, not only are you going to get much, much better tax benefits, one of the main reasons we buy real estate, um, and we can get into some of that. I mean, most people know about depreciation. I find a lot of people don't know about bonus depreciation. And when you buy a million dollar property and you put 30% down or raise 300,000 in equity capital, a lot of times in your first year, you're getting a three hundred to $400,000 write-off because you're able to segregate the value of the building into different buckets, and you can write the five, seven, and 15-year property buckets off 100% in the year you acquire the property. And in most of our properties, those are like 30 to 40%. So remember, you raised 300000 or put 300000 into the deal, and you got a $300,000 write-off. You're getting like literally dollar for dollar. 
So if you sold your business and you have a capital gain or whatever of $5 million and you're able to buy a $20 million piece of commercial real estate, go get a $15 million loan, you might get a $5 million depreciation in year one and literally pay zero tax on your proceeds from the sale of your business. And that's what I think is so exciting about it. And not only that, but if you buy the right type of commercial real estate, you might be able to put two to $3 million into that, be all in for 22, 23 million. And because you've increased the underlying NOI, which again is the EBITDA equivalent, and the underlying um, multiple, which is just the inverse of the cap rate, basically you're bringing the cap rate down, and that building might be worth 27 to $30 million. So now you've uh, created a velocity on your capital and you can either go refinance it and take some of your capital back out or you can just hang on to it long term. So there's so what I love about the correlations between the, the worlds that you and I live in is because the I I've, can't tell you how many times on our training programs, I'm like the discount rate of a business, you're de-risking it and increasing the value of the business. It's the exact same thing with the cap rate and the value of the real estate. And what I think is so interesting about how you even describe the different, it's just about capital deployment, right, Mike? That's what you and I constantly are going back and forth. And you and I have two different asset classes that we play in. And I think what the constant thing that we're hammering into entrepreneurs is that if your business, like if you have a million dollars in cash flow this year, Either A, you can take it out, you know, use it on personal stuff, pay your taxes, use it on personal stuff. Or if you're going to put a half million back in, you better well know the value of your company today and how you're going to get that return in the value of the company by appreciation. If you don't want to do that in your business, but you still want to grow wealth, like you said, either your financial advisor or in commercial real estate. And so I think what the big theme that we're tying together in here is that it's the same game. And I, what I want, as you're about to continue to into your steps is that you can participate in different forms, whether you're super active or passive, but the, it's it's about understanding the game. And I think entrepreneurs like to participate a little bit more than handing over a whole portfolio and Schwab account and having no control, like you said. So there's just so many similarities. Yeah. And I guess the third option is you can, you can buy an underperforming business and drive up the EBITDA and multiple and, and turn around and sell that. But that it's hard to do that as more of a um, kind of a passive type of deal, right? You, you got to really dive in and there's so many more complexities. That's why the opportunities to multiply your capital are so much greater when you're buying business, but that doesn't come without additional risk. And that's where, when you, when you look at the risk adjusted returns, real estate, I feel is, is nice. It's the world I obviously live in. So I go for it. Um, but I think <laughs> there's pros and there's pros and cons to both, right? If you're going to buy a business, you need to really understand the underlying business operation to be able to drive that income stream up. Whereas for real estate, you don't really need to be an expert in real estate because you can invest passively in a partnership with somebody who is an expert. And essentially do, you know, do a limited partner position where you get all the benefits of ownership. And then in exchange for you being a completely passive member in that real estate investment, you pay a little bit of the, a percentage of the upside to the general partner or the deal sponsor who does all the work. Well, what's the work? The work is the seven steps to freedom that I teach in my book. And so my book is really geared towards active investors who want to do the work. And the way that they get paid for the work is they get some of the upside. They essentially take a split on the profitability that they deliver to their passive investing partners who put up the capital. And Which it is, works. Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, like, well, like, it's just as you're describing this too, one thing that I want to make sure everybody's tuning into is that whatever part you want to play, you, there is a place, there's just different returns that are available. So like, well, you know, for some context, Mike, for a lot of listeners in here, you know, businesses might be their preferred asset class, whether they're going to go buy one, whether they're a combination of a search fund, which is kind of the, the similar world of what you're talking about. Or at, like so many times, Mike, I see people where they know their business, so they're comfortable with the risk because it's the people, the industry and all this stuff. So you're getting huge upside in your company because you know everything top to bottom and half for decades. But what happens is people like the hustle, but they don't 
want to take that level of risk in a different industry. And I've had too many people on my show where they thought they had the Midas touch and they went into a different industry and it completely <laughs> exploded because yeah. they didn't really, because they're like, wait a second, I guess it's a little bit more difficult. Right. So I think what, with what you're teaching is that you can have fun and have a hustle, but choose to be passive while you own your company or choose to get into this some sort of fashion without the complete risk of a business and buying a business again. So sorry, that was hopefully that was made some sense with the context, because I think as you get into the seven steps, you can participate in different levels of this and be dipping your toe in the water, depending on where you're at in your business career or where you're at in the company's life cycle. So two things. One is I want to talk about the seven steps. And then the second thing is I, I, I want to just talk about like what a real deal might actually look like. So let's just let's take an example of a real deal that um, I'm working on right now. So $10 million purchase price, okay? It needs a million dollars in renovation and lease up. Uh, the building's like 80% occupied. I have to fill the last 20%. So there's the value add. Normally to add value, you're fixing the building and filling it. And that's two of the seven steps. So I'll give you the seven steps and then I'll show you how each step applies to this real world deal. So the seven steps are, you got to go find a deal. So step one's find. Step two is figure out how much to pay for it. Step three is fund it using an equity partnership and bank financing. Step four is fix the building up. Step five is fill the vacancies. Step six is stabilize the financials. And then step seven is freedom. And that's freeing up your capital or your profit by either refinancing or selling the property and knowing when it makes sense to do one or the other. I have a few different tricks up my sleeve about analyzing your cash on equity that you could pull out of the building, which very few people do. Most people on the back end analyze what's my cash on cash return, but the denominator piece of that is how much cash they put in. What they really ought to be using as the denominator is how much cash they can pull out. Because that's their investment base, it's called, that they can mm -hmm. move into another project. And I so what it, people man. will find, they're like, yeah, man, I'm killing it. I'm getting a 10% you know, cash on cash return. And I'm like, well, let's analyze your cash on your sale proceeds after tax that you would have if you exited. And then they realize they're really only making 4% on the cash that they could pull out of the investment because now they've created so much value. Well, and Mike, let me interject there too, because that is the exact same thing where with a business, you have your enterprise value, your equity value, and then your net proceeds. And that's the same thing that we're hammering through to everybody. And like you even said, like, if you're looking at your return on equity, you put some money in and you probably invested in the, in the buildings over the years too. And it's the same thing with a business. I, yep. just, I just love how similar they are. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, think about this. When you're buying a piece of real estate, you are buying an operating business. Literally, you're buying an operating business. It just happens to be a business that's in the business of owning investment real estate. But it's an operation the same as any other business. And with any business, you need to have really good systems in place in order to perform all the aspects of it. So the fine step is really the marketing aspect of your business. It's how are we generating leads for motivated sellers that are considering selling their building. And we want to be able to get in front of them, be able to have a process to figure out what to pay for them. So the figure step is kind of like it's, the, uh, it, it, it's a little bit sales and it's a little bit finance, right? It's crunching the numbers, figuring out how much you can pay. Well, the way we analyze it, our MAKO, which is the max allowable cash offer that I can give to somebody, is super simple. I project the future NOI when the building is fixed up and filled up. I apply a cap rate to that NOI to predict that future value of what the future, uh, we call it the ASV or as stabilized value. From there, I deduct all of my project costs. There's four key costs in the book. I teach people how to estimate them. The hardest one for people to estimate is the cost to renovate the building. So I give them a renovation worksheet. I also have some free resources on our website with spreadsheets. So you can actually go see all the line items by trade, type in the quantities, and it spits out some numbers. Now, this is 
really just a budgetary number at this point. If you get the property under contract, you're going to go get bids from contractors and get real mm -hmm. firm numbers and then rerun your analysis after you have all your numbers back to see if your max allowable cash offer has changed. And in some cases, you either have to cancel the deal or ask for a price concession. So we're projecting the future as stabilized value. We're deducting our four costs, which are the cost to fix it, the cost to fill it, the cost to close on the project, and the cost to hold it. And there's only holding costs if you have negative cash flow during the stabilization period. So if I buy a vacant building, I still have operating expenses for the building, and I have debt service, so I have negative cash flow. That cumulative negative cash flow, I would actually put in as a cost, essentially I'm deducting from the price I can pay to account for the fact that I'm going to have negative cash flow for 6, 12, or 18 months. And so let's take my $10 million deal. It, the as stabilized value is $15 million. Now I have $1 million in costs. So my break even purchase price is $14 million. And then I say, well, what is my desired profit margin from there? So we basically project the future value, deduct the cost to back into our break-even purchase price. And then it's kind of whatever number you want to make. I shoot for the, the larger of 20% margin, sometimes 25% margin, or 250000 in profit if we're doing a smaller deal. And so in that case, uh, we analyzed that deal and built in a $4 million margin, and my max allowable cash offer was $10 million. But it's nice to know the break-even purchase price because if they counter at, say, 11, I can figure out what my profit would be down to the dollar by simply subtracting their counter offer price from my break-even purchase price. In this case, it would be like $3 million. Well, and, and – <laughs> It's real math, right? Like I think about Mike, how many entrepreneurs or hustlers have, have you and I known? We're like, dude, sweet deal. We got this awesome deal with the potential's amazing, and it's literally just all gut, right? Like there's gonna be cool things coming up around here. There's this awesome brewery. Like it's all just based on like what people like, where they are, like you know things that they're familiar with versus like we're backing into the exact returns that I want and how much we need to go get. It. I just love it. Yeah. So that's the figure step. That's figuring out how much you can pay for. That's max allowable cash offer. You're projecting the future value, deducting your costs and a desired margin to back into how much you can pay today in order to achieve that desired margin. Now, keep in mind that it's price or terms. So if they're stuck on a price that's higher than my Mako, sometimes I can pay that price if they give me favorable seller financing. So for example, right now I have eight properties under contract, actually seven. I just canceled a 42-unit apartment. The numbers didn't work out. The seller didn't want to work with me, and I canceled it. But on Almost all of the other deals, I have some kind of seller financing element. Several of them are contract for deed where I'm putting 10% down and they're carrying um, a contract for deed on it. Uh, a lot of them I have like where I'll go get 75% or 70% bank loan and they're taking a 20% second mortgage or seller carryback loan uh, in second position on the property at very favorable interest rates and, um, and amortizations like 30-year amortization at 3.5% interest. What that allows me to do is raise less equity or potentially just do the deal by myself without even bringing in partners. And so the partnership or the LLC I create may be making less cash flow because I paid more, but because I had to raise less equity, I have to give away less of the project or partnership cash flow, which means my personal cash flow might be the same or even better because of that favorable seller financing. So that's the price or terms game. We teach people kind of four key offers that we commonly make and do deals. One's a master lease, one's a contract for deed, one's a seller carryback, and the other one is um, uh, like an option. Sometimes you can buy an option on a property and pay $5,000 to get an option for six or 12 months. And that way it, uh, it, it eliminates some of the risk if you can't get that property up to a certain mm -hmm. value beyond that option to exercise that option, the same as stocks and bonds. So here's what's really cool. So you take that deal, I need $11 million in capital. So let's say the bank's going to give us 70% or $7.7 .7 million. Now I got to go raise $3.3 .3 million. So now we're on to step three. So step three is funding. And there's two really three, I guess, three pieces to that. 
One is underwriting the deal. So doing all that deep, fun, detail-oriented. Uh, the analytical. Uh, <laughs> so we're, we're interviewing the tenants. We're talking to project management, uh, property management companies. We're collecting all the seller documents, reviewing their financials. We're taking their profit and loss and their 12 months of bank statements. And I actually take the PDFs of the bank statements they send me, extract them into Excel, and run pivot tables on it to see if the actual income and expenses in their bank account matches their P&L. Yeah, right. It's really easy for people to manipulate a profit and loss statement by exporting out of their accounting and going and typing their own numbers in there or deleting some line items. It's very, diff- very difficult to cheat on a bank statement. So there's just a lot of things that we've figured out to de-risk these projects. And there's, there's really two types of risk that you take in real estate investing. There's long-term risk and short-term risk. And in the book, I kind of teach people, but as a high level, long-term risk is the risk that you can't make your mortgage payment or that you have to exit out of the property for less than you have invested into it totally. Now, that's why I think like buying a nice, pretty apartment building that's fully occupied at market rate rents and paying top dollar for it by paying a really, really low cap rate on that or a high multiple of that income is the highest long-term risk investing strategy you can take. Because if some of the market metrics change, like vacancy goes up or cap rates go up or perhaps rent rates kind of stay stable, then what's going to happen is you may uh, have a building that is going to net you less than you've invested into it because you haven't created any value. And that's why I love the value-add strategy. It combats that long-term risk because the value may drop, but it's not generally going to drop below your basis in the building. It may drop below what the market value was last month, but you're only eating into equity you've created, not capital you've contributed. Well, and Mike, I think there's this is such an important comment and concept for every investor that is listening in. Because if you own a business, you're an investor. If you have stocks and bonds, you're an investor. Or commercial real estate, you're an investor. What you just described are just fundamentals. And I'm I think it's so refreshing, Mike, because you and I working in privately held businesses and commercial real estate, like you have to be based in fundamentals. The amount of people that are ignoring fundamentals of investing right now specifically are off the charts. Like you don't need to make money. It's all, you know, it's moonshot stuff. And it's like, if you buy at the highest amount possible of of the PE ratio of a stock and bond or of a stock, you're going to, it's eating into your returns. Like the only way to go down is the only way to go is down. And it's like, it's just important for everything should be value add, right? Isn't that the whole Buffett philosophy from very, the very beginning is you want something that you can control to go up in value. And you just, I think it's just important because you just highlighted the fundamentals that are just unfortunately not too front and center these days. Well, well, I mean, there's like, for example, there's only two colleges in Minnesota that, that have a real estate degree. And I've talked to different professors that work at both of them. And I even have a CCIM designation, which is like the highest private designation you can get in commercial real estate. And you take 200 hours of coursework to go through that and get that designation. And you know what they pound in your head is discounted cash flow analysis, right? Mm-hmm. All mm-hmm. the discounted cash flow. So essentially, you're, you're discounting back using this discount rate. And the problem with that and the IRR kind of approach to valuing properties is it is very, very heavily dependent on your exit assumption for price. And you can literally manipulate the yield on the investment by changing the exit price. And that is the number one impact on the entire project IRR. The other thing I hate about it is it's like, what is the correct discount rate to use? So that's why like we just, I learned all that stuff and it's great. I love spreadsheets. I was a finance major at, at the business school at the University of Minnesota. But at the end of the day, you just cannot analyze value add deals that way. You cannot take the current net operating income and apply a cap rate and derive a meaningful value. Because what happens when I buy a vacant building? It's zero income, has tons of expenses still. So as a negative NOI, yeah, I'll pay you a 10 multiple on that negative NOI. How much are you going to pay me to take your property? That's a tough sell to a seller, right? So, so at some point 
it, you have to transition from from valuing the property based on the income it's producing today, which is what most of the books in the market out there are teaching. They're like, don't ever pay based on a pro forma. It's like, well, then you're not maybe doing value ideals because if if you're evaluating stabilized properties, then yes, you can value them based on taking the NOI divided by the cap rate. But when you're buying an unstabilized income stream, you have mm-hmm. to project what it will be stabilized in the future, value it using that traditional approach, and then kind of work backwards by deducting costs to get it there and a desired profit margin into figuring out what you can pay today. So let's talk about how the fund- um, be, be, oh, it, I, It's unbelievably important, but before you continue on the seven steps, can you give us a couple examples of what underperforming commercial real estate properties you're talking about? Maybe just a few different examples. Yeah. Yeah. We do all four asset classes. We own assets in uh, apartments or multifamily warehouse or uh, often referred to as industrial. We do a lot of suburban office. I don't love downtown office, uh, but we're seeing a big, big opportunity in suburban office. Cause here's what's happening. The perceived risk does not match the real risk. The perceived risk is that suburban office, like, no, that's crazy. You just open up any newspaper and there's massive, massive fear factor in suburban office. So we're picking up properties at like 50 bucks a square foot that rent for like 14 to $16 a square foot gross. And after expenses, I'm netting like eight to $10 a square foot. So when you take like my net rent rate per square foot divided by the purchase price, and that number is like 20%, you can get some, and and you apply leverage to that, you can get some massive, massive um, upside on it. And you can also absorb a significant amount of vacancy and still have your financials play out the same way an apartment would where you're buying that same income stream. So let's look at two examples, right? We got an apartment that's stabilized generating 100,000 of NOI. Let's say I, I value it at a five cap and I go pay $2 million for that. And now I got to go get a $1.5 million loan on it. I take the same $100,000 income stream on an office, but it's not actually generating 100000 today. Let's say it's break even. The NOI mm-hmm. just covers the debt service. So I go in there, I fix it up, I fill it, maybe we get it to 85, 90% occupancy. And all of a sudden the NOI on that thing's $100,000. But I might be all in on that deal at a million bucks instead of 2 million. And now I only have a $750,000 loan. What that means is I can still break even on cash flow at like 45% occupancy. And the apartment owners break even on cash flow at like 82 or 85% occupancy. So people are like... People have this, like everybody's brainwashed, especially people that are investing in apartments or residential real estate who want to get into apartments because that's what they know. They've been a renter, so they understand the end demand. And I'm not going to lie to you. In some cases, the end user demand, the risk for that and that demand is higher in apartments. But when you look at the underlying financials, I think, in my opinion, you're taking significantly more risk buying apartments because it's the sexy girl at the bar that everybody wants, right? You got you got a hundred different investors going after one deal where when we're looking at suburban office, nobody's buying suburban office. So we can kind of pay whatever we want to pay and we're able to get a lot more aggressive in negotiating our deals. And then the last one's retail. We own some retail properties, but they're a lot harder to evaluate than warehouse and office buildings because location is so important. You could have two identical buildings that are literally kitty corner at the same intersection and they're valued massively different. Whereas Mm -hmm. warehouse and office tend to be pretty much very similar rates across the metro within an MSA Mm -hmm. or a major metropolitan area. And that's why I love doing those because you can evaluate them so easily by just figuring out um, how many square feet it is and what your magic multiple is and figure out how much you can pay. I love it. So now we're going, we're back on the funding, right? Sorry, I've been yep. <laughs> throwing curveballs at you. Well, we started with find. We find them. Uh, we do direct, direct marketing. So we literally we call people, we text owners, we send them some, some pieces of mail or flyers or whatever. Uh, we'll hit them with all that. And then we work through brokers and we pay brokers really nice to bring us pre-market deals. That's our, our two top ways of generating deal flow. 
and you just you can't be lazy out there. We have a reputation for closing at the price we agree to, being able to get an offer put in their hands in very, very short order, and always getting our deals funded. So that's how we find them. We figure out what to pay using that approach we talked about. Now here's how we fund them. So let's say you sold your business and you got $3 million in cash and a massive capital gain, and you're trying to figure out what to do with my money can give it to your financial advisor you can buy a business which you you may be able to do that but if you don't really want to do that and you want to just get your money to work you can get somebody like myself and there's tons of active deal sponsors that do private real estate partnerships across the country in whatever asset class you feel the most comfortable with I love, 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 love doing suburban office and small bay industrial. The demand on small bay industrial is absolutely insane. And the economics on suburban office are incredible. We have one building that we just closed on this year. And once I have it stabilized, that single building will pay our partnership $30,000 per month. Now, what I'll do is I'll split that money 50-50 with the person who put up the cash. So they put up the cash, they get 50% of the upside, I do all the work, and we get 50% of the upside. It's the most simple partnership structure that we can do. Now, sometimes I'll pay them a preferred return on their money, or kind of I give them like a dividend on their money before we start splitting the upside. So they might get 6 7 or 8% per year on their money before we split the upside. And that way they kind of hit a minimum re- return before we start getting paid. And then we kind of split the upside. Now, sometimes we- By the way, that's, that's, almost, that's almost exactly how private equity LPs and GPs work too, where there's like a hurdle rate. And then everything yep. after that, they get to this, the split. How did you guys get to the 50-50 split? Or is that just a basic example? We've, we've been delivering returns in the high teens to our investors and low 20s uh, pretty consistently now. And uh, we just have a group of repeat investors that are happy with those types of returns. Here's the thing is- Some people get hung up on the splits like, oh, well, I can go invest in this apartment syndication and and get 70 percent and the sponsor is only taking 30 percent. I'm like, great. If you're happy with your 12 percent yield that they're going to deliver to you because they're going and buying a product and they're paying a 5 percent cap rate on the in-place NOI and there's not as much room to grow it. So don't get still caught up on the split and really look at what is the overall project? What's the risk we're taking? And are you diversifying across multiple assets? Don't throw all your money into one. So one of the things, basically how we've been doing it up until now, Ryan, is I go find a deal. I make a few phone calls. Maybe I do a little pitch deck, like a PowerPoint presentation. I do a webinar, bring in my closest investors and I get my deals funded. Now, when I was first starting, it wasn't that easy, right? Your first baby's the hardest. You're scared shitless. You're driving 10 miles an hour on the way home. Raising money for your first deal is I got denied by 10 banks and it literally took me six months to raise $500,000. I could raise that with one phone call today. And so I just want to be realistic for the people that maybe are just getting started if you want to do the work and be the active investor who gets paid for the work. But what we're talking about here is there's an opportunity for people who've sold their business to partner with a guy like me or other deal sponsors that are reputable and get all the benefits of real estate ownership with none of the work. It's truly passive returns. And you can get some phenomenal returns like team, like literally 10, 12, 14% annual cash on cash, like monthly or quarterly distributions to you on top of a huge back end payday. Like you put in a hundred grand and get 150 or 175,000 back when we exit out of it or refinance in two or three years. So you can kind of get this velocity of capital, but we outgrew the single asset funding model. I knew that that was going to come and the time is right. And so we've set up a multi-asset fund model now where we do it in reverse instead of finding the property and then putting the investors into the deal. I've actually gone and raised capital from investors first, and then now we go get the deals. And so instead of them investing in a property, they're investing in a business that has a business plan to go buy properties. And it's no different than buying stock in a company. And if you believe in their business plan, you can get some phenomenal returns. And so we're raising capital for that right now. It's, it's, it's not an open security. So you have to have a relationship with us. 
Uh, these are exclusive partnerships, and we only allow uh, people into it that we like and want to do business with. But if you don't know us and you, and you want to get to know us, uh, certainly reach out to me, and we can do some kind of strategy or discovery call and, and get to know you and and, um, and talk about your goals. As far as the funding step, that's, I mean, that's it. That's the nuts and bolts. The way we structure it usually is a limited liability company. And, um, you know, we, we split the profit with them after paying a preferred return. And a lot of times a preferred returns based on the amount of capital they put in. So let's say they throw in a hundred grand. We'll usually pay like a 6% preferred at 250. They'll get a 7% and maybe they get an eight preferred return, um, 8% per year on their money. If they do 500,000. What is the, for the people that are looking to help uh, or, you know, fund next to someone, uh, like a deal sponsor like that, what is the timeline that you're locking your capital up for usually? What's the timeline of the investment? Real estate is not a liquid investment. Um, With that being said, if you're, you're buying membership units in an LLC, which is the same thing as buying stock in a corporation, Mm -hmm. those membership units have a value to them and, you just need to be able to find a buyer. So the operating agreement or uh, subscription agreement, if you're coming in on a fund, will stipulate how you can exit or resell your shares if you need to get out. What I always tell people is this. Look, if you, if you want your money back in six months or 12 months, don't, don't do a deal with me, right? The people who put their money in my deals are like, Hey, I sold my business. I got $10 million. I'm going to park $3 million with you. And I want you to give me quarterly distributions and show me how much you've grown my money for me. Let's go. And then let's in 10 years, then we'll reevaluate, right? They just want that mailbox money. They want Mm -hmm. continuity. They don't want to do any work, but guess what they also want? They want big write-offs. So on that $3 million they put in, they might get a $3 million write-off in their first year. So that they actually pay no capital gains on it. So that's one of the huge benefits. You don't get that if you go buy a company or you don't get that if you hand the money to your financial advisor. Yeah. It's a, it, it, it can, can you take loans against it too? Cause I just read this whole article in uh, the wall street and I have plenty of people that I know that do, they they're taking margin loans out on their stock portfolios. I mean, if you actually needed to tap some cash, is there because they're membership unit units, can you actually take a, a loan out against it? So the, the, your membership units have a value and they are a real asset that's backed by a physical asset. And I would imagine there's lenders out there that will use that piece of your balance sheet right. as collateral. Uh, where it's you better, it's more secure than those membership not. units. Yeah, it's more, more, more secure than high overpriced stocks. Yeah. Um, all right. So I've, I've been detouring you. So after the funding, where, where are we headed? All right. So, so after the funding, you're basically, you're underwriting the deal, you're raising the equity, and then you're raising the debt. So the deal sponsor, a lot of times signs on the loan personally, but sometimes we do like 60 or 65% and get non-recourse debt. To me, it doesn't matter because I'm super confident in the short-term risk. So we kind of, we're all over the board here, but we talked about long-term risk. The long-term risk is that you overpay for an asset and now it's worth less than you have into it. The short-term risk is that you blow it in steps four through six, which are your operation steps. So step one, find is your marketing. Step two, figure is kind of like finance and sales. Step three is your financing. And now steps four through six are implementing the business plan to create value in the property. That's fix, fill, and financials. We're talking construction management, leasing, and property management. All three of those combined fall under the umbrella of what I call asset management. So the largest role beyond finding and funding the deal for the deal sponsor is being the asset manager. And the asset manager's job is nothing more than to perform the business plan, which is the same for literally almost every project, drive the NOI up, drive up the multiple of the NOI, and then determine when it's best to move our equity to another project and continue getting velocity of capital. And that's the seventh step is freedom. So the fixed step is, you know, it's it's pretty straightforward, right? You had a preliminary budget. Now you got to get write a scope of work, get drawings, get bids, decide who your general contractor is going to be, or if you're going to play the role of project manager and hire subcontractors directly. And then it's a matter of bringing in your project on time, on budget, making design decisions and scope decisions 
that are smart, like deciding when it makes sense to do a certain renovation. Is it going to add more value than it costs or not? And when are you going to solve big problems that may not increase the rent, but they de-risk the property and increase the multiple? Like if your roof is leaking, you fix your roof, nobody's willing to pay you more money. But when you go to sell your project, the buyer is going to view that as a much lower risk project. And they were probably going to deduct the cost of the roof anyway, because once they got your property under contract and they had inspected and they did a core sample, they're going to find out it needs to be replaced. And they're going to take the deduct anyway. But now you're still in probably a more kind of risky situation for them because is their construction cost going to go up or not? And they're probably going to pad those numbers a little bit. And so you end up taking care of the big things like mechanical issues, roof, parking lot. Um, those are kind of the big things. And then from there, it's carpet, paint, make it look really, really good. It's no different than flipping a house, right? It's curb appeal. We're in the business of filling spaces, right? And so your customer at the end of the day is your tenant. And if the tenant's proud to move their business in and when they come tour your project, it, it feels good, it looks good, it smells good, they can see them operating their business there and bringing their clients there, then they're going to pay you a premium, they're going to renew the leases, they're going to be happy, and that ultimately drives your NOI. So filling the leases, that that's, um you know, Post it online, get a sign out front, and then what we do is we have a web scraper that goes through Google, Yelp, and all that. We type in keywords and zip codes, and we generate a list of neighboring businesses, and then we literally reverse prospect them and force our listing in front of them through <laughs> a, uh, a series of uh, direct marketing campaigns. The same thing we're doing to generate deal flow for our acquisition pipeline, we're doing for our leasing pipeline. So that's direct mail, text, ringless voicemail, emails, and calling campaigns. Those are our top five tactics. And I got I got a comment here because man, <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I I'm in so many you know entrepreneur communities, online communities where it's just like tons of people building funnels. You and I have talked about this millions of times, Mike. And like, there's all these agencies that create these funnels for people, and then people are like, "Why are there? Why can we never find any good marketers?" And I'm like, "Cause someone that has figured out how to market some something, whatever it is." doesn't do it for other people. They do it for themselves. And like when I, what I watched you do on your sales and marketing funnels, Mike, I'm like, you could sell that shit to any business because of how, like how elaborate it is, but you're doing it to build wealth in real estate and to build a business. So it's just, I, I, like I said, I had to comment because it's not some fictitious thing. Like the whole client acquisition cost is all built into the numbers, right? So you, you have, you built that whole system that's effective but then the wealth generation is on the real estate and everything that you're talking about. So I just, it's just something that I've observed because so many people, they get, you know, the, the, the dog and pony show from marketers, which there are good ones out there, but there are a lot of people that just confuse people when really that you're, you're so held to your standards of success on the real estate side that you've made the marketing and sales funnels work. And I just, I just laugh because of how, because <laughs> how awesome it is. Yeah. Me and you were talking about that and, and, um, You've been a, you've been a a really good advisor on our board of advisors to really help me just like think through some of this stuff. And I was going off on all kinds of tangents and stuff. And you're like, you know, helping me just refine and focus and asking the tough questions, right? Seeing the blind spot and kind of raising and poking at like, well, what if this and what if that or what are you doing about that? And so. Um, I'm so grateful to have have you um, really advising me in that regard and would highly recommend anybody out there takes a look at Ryan and his team for helping take your business to the next level because he has really, really helped us streamline. And, you know, if you never quit and, and you keep trying, you're going to see success. But when you get good, smart people on your team of advisors, you can get that success a lot faster with a lot less headaches. And so that's, uh, yeah, that's that, awesome. it's money well spent for sure. So to wrap it up, uh, the financials piece is the property management. And that's really where we're actually creating a budget and making sure that the leases are enforced. Like if we're supposed to be building back utilities that we actually do it and using a property management software that automates rent collection and automatically charges late fees and, getting your tenants to pay through ACH to reduce admin costs and negotiating 
uh, better contracts across the portfolio of properties with vendors for lawn and snow and janitorial and doing fixed rate contracts, not pay as you go, where you have these high highs and low lows. Remember, you want that stable income stream. Uh, doing budget plans for utilities so you have stable expenses every month. Challenging your property tax uh, valuations like clockwork on every property every year, if it makes sense. Having a good attorney who does that for you and can analyze when it makes sense to challenge them or not and works on a contingency basis so they only get paid if they save you money. Figuring out how to administer net leases and collect CAM and tax and reconcile the CAM and tax budgets against what they've paid in for the year and making sure that you're not leaving money on the table. That is all property management and having a really good property management partner. Look, I, I was an idiot. I thought I'm going to vertically integrate. I'm going to do all my own leasing and construction and property management. And, you know, at the end of the day, what I realized is when you're doing all those things, you're not doing them to save money and grow your investing business. You're actually creating a whole other business. And that business on its own better be profitable and it better not take away from your core business. And the property management division was not only not profitable for me, but I spent half of my week dealing with property management, even though I had a full-time property manager. So it just made a tremendous amount of sense to eliminate all the overhead, all the headaches of that, and turn that into a variable cost where it just ebbs and flows as I buy or remove properties. And I didn't want to be in the property management business. My my zone of genius, the thing that really brings me energy is talking about systems, negotiating and structuring creative deals with people, and uh, and meeting with tenants and property owners. I love that shit. I can do that day in, day out. <laughs> um, and it really brings energy into my life. And I find brushing shoulders with these people really increases my trajectory in life. And that's why I love commercial real estate. You had asked that at the beginning, like, why commercial over residential? It's like, dude, all things being equal, all the money and everything being equal. Do you want to do one $5 million commercial deal and add 10 grand a month in recurring revenue for as long as you own that property? And your clients that you get to deal with day in and day out are really cool little entrepreneurs that are the CEOs of their company and that's who your customer is? Or do you want to buy an apartment complex and compete against every other Joe Ball out there. I, I have some apartments under contract. I, I talk about them so negatively, but I'm just like, I'm just trying to like, change the game on people because everybody thinks of like apartments are the only other lot. Like I, I have so many people like who sell a business or whatever to have cash. And they're like, well, I feel more comfortable investing in apartments. Yeah. yeah give me a duplex. Mike. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, uh, well, I think I, I'd rather invest in apartments. There's way less risk there. And it's like, all right, you know, I had a boot camp where I had, 10 students in a van and I was driving around. I heard them all back there like, yeah, we're going to do apartments and this, that, and the other. And I was just smiling ear to ear because they couldn't set me up for my content after lunch any better. And when I came back from lunch, I asked them all, I was like, all right, who, what asset class are you guys going to invest in? I think like almost everybody except for maybe a couple of them in the room, it was like 30 person boot camp said that they were doing apartments. And by the end of that day, I think I only had a couple that were going to do apartments and everybody else was doing small bay industrial or suburban office. And it's like, once I took them down that pathway to show them that like there's multiple risk points, one of the coolest things that I put in my book is a risk in real estate diagram. And I actually thought through every single piece of risk and how they interrelate to each other and where those risks are created and how you can use a system and a strategy to not only combat short-term risk, which is the risk that you blow it on your fixed filler financial steps versus that long-term risk, which is the risk that you lose money for your investors because you have to sell your property for less than it's worth or, or whatever. So that's a really cool diagram. And how do you combat the short-term risk of blowing it during your remodel and your lease up or whatever it's making sure that you have a really, really good system. And that's why the book gives people a step-by-step -step system. And I didn't want it to be another content book where I just give concepts and strategies, but I don't actually show people how to go out and do this stuff. Because the last thing you need is to attend another seminar or read another book to get you excited. You're either already excited or you're not. 
What you need is you need to figure out if you want to be an active or a passive investor. If you're an active investor, literally read each chapter, do the homework, consider getting involved in our commercial investing mastery program. If you're the type of person that learns better from a course in a group setting where you can get questions answered, hey, I got this deal, I'm dealing with this, how do I deal with that? That's what I can't solve for you in the book, but I can solve for you through our commercial investing mastery program. Um, and then on the other side is if you want to be a passive investor, you literally have one decision to make. Who is the deal sponsor I want to put my money with? Who do I feel has the best system, the best long-term strategy for the types of assets they're buying? Are they buying value add or stabilized? And what is their operating systems in place to make sure that they're fixing them up on budget, not blowing their remodeling budget and overpaying for the properties on the front end because they didn't know how to estimate repairs. And that's why I didn't think my construction experience was going to help me that much. But one of the hardest things for people to do when they get started in this is to walk through a property and put together a scope of work and a price. And that's one thing that just continues to pay dividends over and over and over again for us. And then how are we projecting the income? You have to know what the market is. And when you're out there doing leasing day in and day out and actually talking to tenants and generating leads and doing showings, you know what the market is. And then you can confidently analyze a building knowing that you're going to be able to rent it for a certain dollar amount versus having that fear. The big fear when you do your first project is going to be that you're scared that you were wrong in your assumptions and you're going to lose a bunch of money. And that is a real fear. And that's why you don't want to get into this without having a mentor or a coach or a partner who's done it before that can really double check your work and try and poke holes in your assumptions. So that's the seven steps to freedom. Uh, I do really want this to be a system that blesses people's lives. And I did not write this book for monetary gain. If I did, I wouldn't have a $50,000 loss on my P&L because of the book right now. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that doesn't account for your time, right? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it does not. But I want to get this in people's hands, and I'm giving it to people for free. Now, look, I'm not going to pay to print the book. If you want to buy a hard copy, hop on Amazon uh, or buy a soft cover on there and, and do that. Um, and that helps me out and leave me a review. No um, out, sure. But I can give you a PDF for free. And I, I can do that if you just go to commercialinvestingbook.com. I'll give you a PDF for free. I'm even going to give you a free membership to my back end where I have some of my coolest videos on how to structure partnerships how to invest as a passive investor. If you want to uh, get to know us and, and talk about your goals as a passive investor, you can uh, book a discovery call with me in that backend portal or just reach out to me. Uh, it's Mike at commercialinvestorsgroup.com. And Ryan, I really appreciate you having me on the show. Well, Mike, this is, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I love the systems and how thought through this is. I mean, this is all coming from personal experience. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had you on had it been just another concept, like you said, right? Like this is like specifically how to do these things from what you're doing. And people can actually go make more wealth, whether they're going to be, you know, whether they're going to invest as a partner, as a passive partner, or they want to have this as their next go around after selling their business. And one thing that you you, you slightly touched on, but I want to just kind of round, use this to round us uh, over to home is that. The last part is the freedom, which is the refinancing or selling. What is very different about real estate than businesses is, and and I think there's different um, different degrees of this thought process based on generations or industries of you're going to sell it at some point. Like everybody knows that with real estate, they don't have to hide it or anything like that. We're like, when we talk about growing a more valuable business with the end in mind, you just want to, you're going to have more options to recapitalize, do an ESAP, do private equity, sell to an internal buyer if you build the intrinsic value. And you're talking about the same thing. Like you're talking about recapitalizing and the bank's going to give you more money if you want to refinance that. You can do the same thing with your business. People just put their head in their sand, <laughs> put the head in the sand. And so like there's a way to get the money back out and it's all predetermined from the back end. Right. So like, you're not going to just hope and dream at some point you're going to do something with this. So you, I just wanted to round that home. And the, the last question, cause you've already given all your contact information is I ask everybody what the word intentional means, because I love hearing different people's definitions and it's the name of the show. So Mike, the word intentional, what does it mean to you? It means where your activities align with your plan. 
Drop the mic. Mike, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. A lot of, a lot of fun. Hey, Ryan, it, it was fun. And, uh, dude, we still got to get that wake surf on the books. Holler at me separately. Oh, yeah. We got, yeah, we got like only a couple more weeks. <laughs> yeah, man. We're getting down there, dude. Me and James have been spending some good time out there. So we'll be in touch. And uh, I appreciate it, man. I really hope you enjoyed that episode with Mike. Uh, lots of detail in that episode. And the big takeaway is that you need to figure out what your financial targets are. Principle number two in the intentional growth framework helps you understand how to calibrate your annual income, your outside net worth, and the value of your business. Commercial real estate can play a huge part in that, especially because a lot of business owners own the real estate that their business is renting from. And I think about you know, how do you bridge that value gap in your financial freedom number by checking out how that net worth needs to grow if you can't accomplish your targets while owning your company? I think that's a huge takeaway. And the second huge takeaway I would add is that Mike and I are talking about how to own financial assets and invest in financial assets by de-risking the cash flow, growing the value of that business so the cash flow can be more sustainable and transferable and predictable. And I think when you start to hear how Mike's talking about commercial real estate, that is literally exactly what the private equity industry is doing. So if you can hear how Mike talks, uh, if you're ever intending to sell to a private equity firm or honestly an ESOP or anybody, you need to be viewing your business in the same lens, in the same language, even though you might be having your head down and grinding day to day you know, with a job, you still own this asset that is your business. So I think understanding of the commercial real estate and how that could be a wealth creator for yourself and how to apply value creation techniques on that and strategies, as well as how to take that same mindset and apply it to your, to your business and using the five intentional growth principles and specifically principle number two to put context around how all this material matters. If you want more information, go check out the intentional growth training, go to arcona.io the curriculum's on there and we dive all into business valuations as it relates to how to view your company like a financial asset. Thanks for tuning in and I will see you next week.